1992. I went to my first RYM in 1992 when I was just out of seminary and have been involved with RYM since 1992. I was on the actual board for RYM. Uh, but my basic story of life is born and raised in South Carolina. Uh, my mom is a Christian, and my dad, uh, I don't have time to tell you the great story of my dad. I don't know if my dad's a Christian. We talk about it a lot, but my dad was the, super, the Sunday school superintendent for First Baptist Church Camden for 26 years and head usher so that he effectively went to church for 30 years and never attended a teaching event. He would do Sunday school take up attendance, pass out the material, and then he would go usher, and he'd be the last to sit down and first to get up. It was, it's a brilliant strategy. Um, I love my dad. Uh, so I'm from South Carolina, a little town, Lugolf. I have one brother. He's four years younger than me. Uh, we grew up going to public schools in Lugolf, South Carolina. So where's Lugolf? It's northeast of Columbia, South Carolina. It's a bedroom community on the way to uh, the promised land. That'd be Myrtle Beach, uh, which is right there with Panama City. And um, so I attended Clemson University, so when I wear my national championship gear, Alabama people, I've earned it, and uh, I was at the championship game this year, and it was better than you think it was. Um, uh, went to Clemson University, then went, uh, got involved with RUF at Clemson University, having been raised Southern Baptist, had a profound sort of impact on my theology and on my thinking about Christianity. Went to Covenant Seminary from 1988 to 1990, uh, I'm sorry, 1989 to 1992. And uh, I was at Covenant Seminary before it was cool, like it was not cool when I was there. Uh, St. Louis was not cool, it was just cold. And um, then from Covenant, I came to work for RUF at a little place called Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi, 92 to 96. Married my wife, Marissa, who's from Tupelo, Mississippi. She went to Ole Miss, and she was an intern at Clemson. We did not date when she was at Clemson, but dated five years later and got married. So from 92 to 96, I was the RUF campus minister at um, Bellhaven, and then we moved to Knoxville, Tennessee in 96, where I became the RUF campus minister at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Um, and then in 2002, 2003, I became the assistant coordinator for RUF and was that for the next 15 years until 2017. And subsequently, since 2017, uh, we have uh, become empty nesters. We have three daughters. Sarah is a registered nurse here, graduating, had graduated from the University of Tennessee in nursing here at St. Thomas in Nashville and is loving life. Catherine Stone, my middle daughter, is a junior at the University of Tennessee uh, and will rescue animals until she dies. Uh, I am barely keeping her in school. She... She's actually an animal whisperer. It's crazy. Then my youngest daughter is a freshman at Ole Miss. Uh, just became a Kao to fulfill all of her mother's dreams. <laughs> who was a Kao at Ole Miss. Um, and so we're empty nested, so we decided to take an adventure. And we've just moved to Tucson, Arizona. Um, and we're at a church called Catalina Foothills Church, where I'm the lead pastor. Um, you don't have time for that story, but big church planted by a guy from Birmingham got real big. He was there 20 years. He got a heart condition. He retired. Uh, like a lot of churches that go through transition, they hired a new pastor. It blew up. Went from 900 to 200. Um, went from about you know, $2.5 million budget to about a $600,000 budget. That's called a disaster in church world, right? And so they had to let that gentleman go, which was unfortunate. And then they had a new search process. And I'm the sucker, right? So my wife and I have exchanged grass and trees for cactus 
and coyotes, and it's, uh, we're having a good time. But I am really glad to be here with you. So what I did in RUF, why am I qualified to teach this? Uh, because none, nothing on that resume said youth ministry particularly. Um, uh, but I was the person who led RUF for those um, 15 years to think about what our philosophy of ministry was and how we ought to apply it and think about it. And so uh, what we're doing today, <coughs> I've done a bunch. So I'm going to cough. I'm not sick. You can shake my hand. I have a sinus infection. And that sinus infection, which is blowing my head up right here massively right now under for Advil, is just draining into this cough. So at some point I will cough uncontrollably, but I'm not contagious. You can't pass along sinus infections. So, um, so there we have it. Let me pray for us now, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Father, I thank you for the privilege of being with these people who love you, being with your people who you love. And uh, for us to think about what a philosophy of ministry is and why we need one <coughs> and how we might grow in our understanding of ministry and our understanding of the church and our understanding of how you're at work in the world. Um, would you pour out your spirit here on this and would you teach us uh, what it means anew to be your people and to be ministers of your gospel? We pray this for your name's sake. <coughs> Amen. Um, we're going to begin... I also have a bad back suddenly, so I'm going to look funky. We're going to begin in 2 Corinthians 4. If I could spell it. (coughs) So... What we're doing in this first hour, and I hope we'll do it for 45 minutes and then you can ask me questions. What we're doing in this first hour is trying to answer the question of why do you even need to think about a philosophy of ministry? And then what is the thing? And I'm I'm not going to be complex here. I think you need to think about your philosophy of ministry because the philosophy of ministry answers two questions for everybody. What we believe and how that impacts what we're doing. (laughs) At the heart of a philosophy of ministry is you, as a leader or as a minister, deciding what you believe and how that impacts what you're doing. And I'll just, um, I'm not throwing RUF under the bus here, but um, I can just say RUF really has a strong theology of ministry, and a lot of what you'll hear this week will be a theology of ministry. But the question is then, how do you, how does that impact what you're doing? Um, And let me tell you why you know this is significant, but no, don't know it's significant. If you look in your, normally in your town, there are two churches, two PC churches. Just for the sake of clarity, there's a very conservative PC church. There's a very progressive PC church, not liberal. There's no such thing as a liberal in the PCA. I moved to Tucson, trust me. Um, so you have a very conservative church and a very progressive church. But if you took those pastors and staff and you put them in a room and you gave them a test on theology they would answer the questions the exact same way. It's crazy. But they keep claiming, you know, our philosophy of ministry means, um, but they believe the same thing, so they're practicing different things. So in a good philosophy of ministry, we decide what we believe, and then we see how that impacts what we do. And I'm I'm telling you, that's the hard question. That's actually a very difficult question. People are not answering that question well, and I'm not going to answer it well. But I want you to at least embrace that, that when you walk into a PC church, we know what we believe, but we practice very different things. 
But what you practice has a huge impact on how you do evangelism, how you do discipleship, how you do church. But, but, so what we're trying to get you to do is say, this is, what, this is what in youth ministry we must communicate to youth. And this is how we should do it. This is what we're after. But the second thing, and this is where we're going to start, you need a philosophy of ministry to deliver you from you. And so this is, when I read in first, read in 2 Corinthians here, I'm going to argue this. You're, you're captured by essentially three things, and, and so am I in a big way. You're captured by your personality, you're captured by your experience, and you're, you're captured essentially by your demographic, right? These things have a bigger impact on you, your experience, your personality, and your demographic than you know. And part of what we want you to do this week, part of the reason to come away from your church, to come out of your local context, is just to get you to think. Like, to get the pressure of the weeks, of the normal week's activity off of you, so that you can begin to sort of think about, <coughs> excuse me, who you are and what you, um, so what you do. So I'm going to read in 2 Corinthians 4 as we begin. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers (coughs) so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, this will not be, and I'm not apologetic, this will not be my best exposition I've ever done. But I'm using this phrase here because it caught my attention about 12 years ago in verse 5, to begin to help you think about philosophy of ministry. For he says, we, for what we preach is not ourselves. And so for some reason, and it's because I had to think so much about philosophy of ministry and what it is, that I wanted to figure out how, how does someone preach themselves? Because let's... Um, because let's, and let's keep picking on, by the way, I know you're not all from the PCA. So by the way, I know we're not all PCA churches. We're, we're, we're lots of brands of folks here. We're Christians and we're thinking about youth ministry. But when he says we're not preaching ourselves, he means that some people are. And here's what we know they're not doing. Just, ex, just in the scriptures, no one that Paul is referring to is standing up in the New Testament and going, you should follow John Stone and not Jesus Christ. And Paul would use a very different language to describe that, and he does. I mean, as, I mean as, he can, as, he, as he's contemplating what he's preaching in his ministry, because in 2 Corinthians, it's Paul's biggest defense of what he does, right? He doesn't mean that men and women are standing up and saying, follow me or do it my way. He means something more subtle. And in this sense, this is what we want 
this, the subtlety of this is what we want to get at this morning at the beginning. <coughs> because as we work through a philosophy of ministry, as we give you categories, as we give you purpose and goals, as we give you principles and presuppositions, as we sort of work through that language, what we're trying to get you to experience is a liberation from yourself. And, and, and really a, a fuller sort of engagement with the scriptures. Because what I would argue, and I, again, I'm living this in my life in Tucson, is two churches with the same core beliefs and deeply different ways of practicing that, there's something a little broken in that. It's not fundamentally broken, but it's a little broken. Because we, we hope that we'd all be following the New Testament. So I, I want to explore just briefly... <coughs> this morning, how someone preaches themselves. And the first, the first thing I would say it means is, uh, and I don't know how I said it, I always change this, so forgive me for not being the most disciplined rememberer, but I, I want to say the first big thing a POM needs to deliver you from is your experience. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly. Your and my experience are invaluable. There's no sense in which I'm trying to tell you that your experience uh, is invalid or not true. God is at work. You have a story, and that story is real. But you, if, you're, if you're not honest with yourself, if we don't do strong enough work in the POM, you won't recognize that your experience traps you. So let me give you an example of how it trapped me. I was a student at Clemson University, and my experience with David Sinclair... <laughs> the campus minister at Clemson, is that he is a genius at small groups. It's, it's amazing. So I want you to think about this. I was in an RUF at Clemson. God was really at work in my life. My, I came to Christ in those, in those, through that Southern Baptist ministry, and I'm very thankful for that. And then in, through RUF, I really grew in my understanding of God's character and the Word of God and, and so many beautiful things. But the way it happened at Clemson is David was a really good preacher. But my senior year at Clemson, RUF was about 175 people, and there were 40 small groups. Which, if you know anything um, about RUF or even just about life, 40 small groups is what we call a miracle. Um, I don't know how you get 40 small groups going. Um, and David just had this amazing ability to train people and to get them doing small groups. It's a beautiful thing. So <clears throat> my point here is not that that was wrong or that I'm criticizing that. My point is I thought that all ministry involved doing 40 small groups. <clears throat> so I went to seminary. I was very involved in small groups in seminary. I thought about, a lot about small groups. I wrote papers about small groups. And then I went to Bellhaven College, and I tried to start small groups, and none of them started. None of them. In fact, in my first two years, I shut down eight small groups. And man, I want you to know I was devastated. I felt like I wasn't called to ministry. I felt like um, I didn't know what I was doing. And there's some truth in that. I'm not that I wasn't called to ministry. I didn't know what I was doing. But this very powerful experience... And for me, at Clemson, in the, first in a small group that I don't know that I would teach anymore, where we studied Burkhoff. Uh, and then in another one where we did Richard Pratt's prayer, book on prayer, Prayer With Your Eyes Open. 
God really worked. And so I had this experience at Clemson of small groups working, and then I tried to impose that on everybody. And I tried to make everybody have my experience. So if you don't think this is real, just think about parents. So you'll have parents in your life who they went to a camp or they were converted at RYM Summer Beach Conference or they were converted in Crusade and the parent is bound and determined that their child will have that experience because they're convinced that that's how God works, right? And you're watching this child who's an introvert not want to go do all these extroverted things that her mother did and so the child is becoming rebellious because the mother is forcing the child into a certain experience instead of just allowing the children to be. So I would argue that my, my experience <coughs> really betrayed a lot of things. I can, for instance, I'll, I'll tell you something I know about myself now. Um, I can't do small groups. Like when my church hired me, I said, I'll never be a good small group leader. Every time I do a small group, it goes one of two directions, and kind of equally both directions. It grows into a Sunday school where I can get from sitting down to standing up and talking like this, or it dies. So I, I've sat with a couple men who can lead small groups where they could ask this question. Explain the efficacy of the Holy Spirit in the presence of the of the. Uh, the, of Deuteronomy and how that impacts modern Christianity. And people will start saying stuff like this. It just means Jesus loves me. They just start doing the text. I ask that question. People fall asleep, fall over, and leave. Like, I am a small group killer. I've never literally led an effective one. I've, I've been in the presence of many people who can't. And so I had to come to grips with, I am more of a, a lecturer or preacher. I don't, <coughs> even when I try to, like, say, hey, ask questions. People don't ask questions. And that's how God made me. But I also had to get over the idea that I was David Sinclair or that everybody would come to Christ in the same experience. <coughs> and so what the POM did for me is it began to liberate me from this experience. And, for instance, in our POM, we see that there are, uh, in our avenues, there are one-to-one -one small groups and large groups. It's a very simple concept. But you need to recognize that your life probably grew in one of those areas, but God uses all three of those areas. Now, just quickly, wh why does this matter to me? Is that in my church, for instance, or in my RUF when I was leading them, I had to work really hard to find small group leaders. And I quit actually doing small group leader training because it sounded like how to preach a good sermon when I did it, right? It didn't sound like how to do a small group. That's a weakness in me. But the POM, as I really began to develop it, helped me not, I love my experience at Clemson. Not, you know, for one reason we're owning Alabama right now, but for another reason, um, it was God really used it in my life in a powerful way. And so I don't despise that experience, but on some level I have to see through it, right? I have to see <coughs> through that experience, um, which brings me to a second thing we want to deliver you from. <coughs> I told you I'd cough. Is uh, I think I'm going to do um, your circum. I called it demographic. I'm going to call it circumstances now. So your circumstances are again something that are beautiful. Um, I would not despise them. I don't want you to 
like hate your circumstances. But um, I'm going to give you an example of a campus minister who really struggled because he didn't understand his circumstances. <coughs> we had an RUF intern who had to be the fill-in campus minister for a year at the end of his two years. So in RUF, you do these two years as an intern. And in this case, in his second year, his campus minister left, and we couldn't put a new campus minister in. So we put this two-strong language, but the, intern, the male intern was put in charge. And in that year, that group grew. It's the only time in the history of the world where you put an intern in charge when a campus minister's left, and the group went from about 75 to 125. Now, if you studied what happened there, if you really stepped into that, what went on there is that they had about 25 seniors who really loved RUF, and those seniors crushed it. In fact, as the campus minister left, in one sense, it, it really caused those seniors to embrace ministry. There's, again, nothing wrong with this. But my friend began to think, man, I know what I'm doing. Like, I'm good at this. I don't blame him necessarily. Like, he took over an RUF with a very experienced campus minister leaving, and the thing almost doubled. People got converted. It was real. But if you really study what was happening there, it was a southern campus <coughs> with a unique, strong Christian leadership, and the thing really blew up. So that when he went to seminary, got out of seminary, and we placed him at a campus which was non-southern, very few church people, he got deeply depressed. And he began to say, what has changed? Well, nothing had changed about him. He's to this day, and has really grown in this, a very effective pastor. He's a lead pastor in church. He's doing a great job. But what he didn't understand was his circumstances. So if we put you in the right set of circumstances, you might call this demographics, it is, in fact, easier to do ministry in those circumstances than in other circumstances. Don't lie to yourself about this. Some of the reason churches in your town are big is somebody was smart enough to put them in the right place. Okay, in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, for instance, uh, the second largest church is Cedar Springs, an EPC church. Have anybody here from Cedar Springs? The demographic, <coughs> the demographic center of Knoxville, Tennessee is seven feet outside their front door. When they did the last census of Knoxville, the middle of where people live is seven feet outside their front door. So you think they're going to move? 60% of Knoxville drives by their church. Um, it's in the right place. It's also had great leadership. It has great ministry. I could commend the church. But if we put those same people in Halls, Tennessee, it's not the biggest church in Knoxville. It, Halls is a harder place to do ministry. <coughs> and the reason I'm saying this to you is that this should both uh, encourage you and even chasing you a little bit. So it should encourage you because some of you are just in harder places. Um, you're just in places where it's harder to gather people, or there are not as many Christians, or, you know, or your church is in a really obscure part of town, or your church <coughs> is very committed, this is okay, very committed to a Christian school model, uh, more than a model that might involve public schools, for instance. All of these things, your circumstances, have an impact on you. 
and your, the, your ministry size. And when you aren't honest about that, you can easily become discouraged on the one hand or overconfident on the other hand. And you don't let yourself be honest about what's going on, right? And so like my friend, you have this really beautiful circumstance where God's at work and you think it means something about you that it doesn't. Look, I, I did RUF at Bellhaven and, and, and the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Now as I live in Tucson, there's a gentleman named Dan Smith doing RUF at the University of Arizona. Dan will never have the numbers that I had at the University of Tennessee. He'll probably, I, I'm praying against this, he probably will never see the conversions that I saw at the University of Tennessee. Because what he's doing is infinitely harder. It's the University of Arizona, just as a study demographically, is crazy pagan. Like crazy pagan. Uh, the frat scene, the sorority scene, just the social life. And when you don't understand that, uh, and when you don't have a POM that's working in you, then you, be <coughs> you begin to really read the wrong things. The last thing I'd like to deliver you from a little bit, and these are similar in some ways. <coughs> Let's go to the cough drop at this point. Let's stop. See, I'm coughing. Y'all are coughing. Here we go. I would like to deliver you from your personality. And I'll use myself as this example. <coughs> personality. So... Um, there are a couple, I'm not going to name them, and it doesn't matter if you buy me bourbon or give me cash, I'll never tell you who I'm talking about. <laughs> but there are a couple sort of legendary figures in RUF lore who are campus ministers who did amazing jobs. Listen to me, they did amazing jobs. They're amazing campus ministers. And we used to always put them up in front of the room to do POM training. And what happened is it utterly confused the room. They were terrible at doing training. I have this propensity at times. And the reason they're terrible at it is they have incredibly unique personalities. Like they're the kind of people who can sort of walk in a room and the non-Christians love them more and the Christians would die for them. It doesn't matter if they're rude, if they're poorly dressed, if they smell bad. They just have this gigantic gift. It's a gift of God, a personality. God uses it. I'm not despising that. But when you don't recognize your personality, <clears throat> you don't really understand how God's working around you because you assume that the way you did it is the way it's to be done. <coughs> so we'll use some easy illustrations here before we get into a particular one. But a POM delivers you from this because a POM says introverts and extroverts can be equally effective in ministry but in very different ways so if you're an introvert and you hate all of us extroverts I understand it my middle daughter is an introvert and she hates our family because <laughs> she's got two extroverted parents and two extroverted sisters and like dinner for her nightmare it's a nightmare but your personality type God uses it but he wants to use it through a POM that balances us out so that we take into, and you're going to be taught this throughout the week. I know you don't know all the language yet. 
<coughs> you're going to be taught this. And what a POM really does, it delivers you from your personality. So if you're a, I don't like this about myself, but I tend to value, this is not surprising, upfront extroverts. I'm an upfront extrovert. It's called sin. That's why I value that. But if I don't have both upfront introverts and behind-the-scene extroverts and behind-the-scene introverts, my ministry will become deeply unbalanced. If you don't understand who you are, you will only seek yourself. Or interestingly enough, more like marriage, you'll only seek your opposites and you'll be really angry. So if you're a if you're an extrovert who's an upfront person and you don't want to share the stage with other people, you'll only seek introverts who need time away from people and you'll despise them. You will. If you're an introvert who's very good at doing the upfront thing professionally and who's got to balance people, <coughs> you'll want some more extroverts, you'll get them and you'll hate them. But what a POM really tries to help you do is to understand your gifts to acknowledge your gifts, to embrace them and love them, and yet to then begin the ministry that's, that's more balanced than you are. So, you know, newsflash, you're not balanced. None of you, not me and not you. And the older and more mature you get, the more unbalanced you'll think you are. I mean, you'll really see it. Start raising some children, you'll lay on the floor and ask God to kill you, right? You'll just, you'll see how deeply unbalanced you are. You're murdering those children, and you're trying to love them. It's horrible. And so this, what we're doing with a POM, especially in training, is trying to get you outside of yourself. So, I mean, this isn't really true in reform circles or conservative circles, but we can be a little bit poo-pooey of personality tests, right? Like, I think they're really helpful, I mean, in one sense, whatever one you like, don't, you know, there's 57 million of them, but some of them are really good, is there's a sense in which you do have to understand who you get along with and who you don't get along with. You've got to understand that. I'm amazed how often I see pastors and people who have this kind of authority hire people and think they're perfect, and all of us, if you're, in, let's, let's just use the Enneagram, we'll use this one, like, you're like, and I don't know what the Enneagram is, so I haven't, that's why I'm using it. I've never done it. Oh, that's a three hiring an eight. That'll never work. Well, that's actually probably true in the book, but it's amazing how often a three hires an eight and has no acknowledgement like, I'm going to hate an eight. And now, by the way, I don't know what a three or an eight is. Um, these things tend to be true, <coughs> but it's also true that not only maybe I shouldn't hire four eights if that's what doesn't work in the book, I probably should hire one, and I should know I'm the one struggling with the eight. God made the eight, and God uses the eight, and I've got to give them space. Right, so these things, these things are what our POM delivers you from. But what I would say is when we preach ourselves, it's us preaching this instead of a fuller understanding of God's creation, of God's order, and God's working. <coughs> and so this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to deliver you from preaching yourself. Now, I'm going to actually be unusual for myself and say, are there questions? I'm going to shift a little bit here. Are there questions at this point? It makes me terribly insecure when there are no questions. Thank you so much, friend. <laughs> Just explain again what you meant with your Enneagram illustration. 
The biggest pastors, I think, are the least self-aware people. Because in one sense, if I put you in the, in the right place with the right personality, you have a 3,000-member a church, and God's really working. We're not, let's don't despise big or despise small. Let's just acknowledge that God's at work, right? Which is what the POM says, God's at work. Um, but, but we'll often bring in some of these pastors or people who just crush it, or you can be this way, and you start speaking out of your experience and circumstance and personality, and it's really unhelpful to people who are different than you. Like a POM is trying to identify what's true at all times and all places and with all people. And I'm just saying that, so many of you are good at small groups. And so when you hire a, an intern, right, and they're terrible at small groups, it actually makes no sense to me. And you start saying, they're not studying, they're not working. What's wrong with them? Well, what's wrong with them is they're a one-on-one specialist. Or they're really good up front. And your evaluation of them is based on your personality. Any, like I've heard somebody say, anybody can do a small group. Friends, you're looking at a 53-year-old man who can't do a small group. And I've done everything, you know. I've been an administrator. I've been a campus minister, big and small. I'm now a pastor of a church of about 500 people. I can't do a small group. Um, and if somebody tries to say, well, anybody can do a small group, they're now preaching themselves by seeing their personality as normal. <coughs> right? I, you're going to say, why didn't you do this here? And I'll, I'll tell you why. In RUF, we we can force people to do training for a certain amount of years. One of the things, often we'll start that training with a section on repentance. And we'll start it with repentance and teachability. And what I would say is, (coughs) the older you get, the more your POM keeps pulling you out of this. You know, and it keeps, it doesn't, Again, who you are, God made you, you're, you're utterly unique. He, he created your story. He put you in certain places, and he's at work. But there's a part of a POM that helps you rightly see through yourself so that you can become repentant and teachable as you move into new experiences or as the culture changes around you. Does that make sense? It's a good question. Yes, sir. If I could answer that question, I'm going to. I'd be a billionaire. But I would say that what I'm after here, to answer your question directly, is to... to, Oh, it's a deer. Sorry. (laughs) There's a bunch of deer. I'm sorry. I just looked up and like, oh, there are deer walking through the woods. Sorry. (laughs) Um, See them? Uh, that's cool okay his question one of my good friends who who God uses powerfully is an evangelist I mean he's truly an evangelist like I never understood an evangelist till I was around him 
in almost every relationship he has, I mean, he, he leads two or three people to Christ a week. But he sort of beats everybody up around him for not doing the same thing. Now, I, don't want, I want him to lead more people to Christ, and that's me being honest. I want him to recognize that others are not him. So the line is not, I want you to draw on your experience. I want you to understand your circumstances and use your personality. You're right. But I want you to be aware that those things leave you incomplete as a person. That's why I might, I might say, like, I need to repent of these things. Not stop doing them, but understand them. So if we send you to one church and you preach and teach and you lead, whether it's youth ministry or, or assistant pastor or head pastor or whatever, right? You may see a certain amount of success, and then you take a call somewhere else and you see less. And I want you to have some awareness like, some of these things have changed. I haven't quit following Jesus. I haven't failed, but now I'm in a, I'm in a harder place. And my personality doesn't work as well here. Like, what these people experience is not what I experienced. So it's not that I want you to despise it. I just want you to see it. Does that make sense? A lot of people don't see it. And, and you look, you've all experienced this. Not, I, I can't really think of this, but I ha, I, I'm conscious of hearing people teach about ministry. And what I think is, this is you. This is not necessarily the Bible. And that's, that's okay. But you're telling me how you do it. Please tell, tell me how Jesus will let me do it. And that's, that's the way I'd answer that. Other questions? Yes, sir. <laughs> so coming from Covenant, uh, Dr. Douglas had a lot of... Yeah, he's a big personality guy, yeah. So uh, I think the question is where you're, the trajectory you're on, if you can use this example for Enneagram, are you saying that if you are a three, uh, you should either be aware of that threeness and avoid working with eights because you know that would be unhealthy, or know that you're a three and so you will be... Stuck out. I want you to know you're a three and recognize that I mean, look, marriage is the easiest one. We're just attracted to our opposite. My wife said about you, you know, John, you're honest, you're blunt. My family was never honest and blunt. I was attracted to her because she was so full of mercy. Well, I hate mercy, and she hates bluntness. <laughs> because we grew up, and I grew up in a blunt environment. She grew up in a merciful environment. Well, we hate that about each other. But we're so attracted to it. We're so in love. And now we're like, I hate your guts. But it makes us holy. It, it's good for us. It makes us see the word more fully. It's not that I would avoid it. It's just the unawareness of it. Um, I'll give you one other example. I have a, another good friend who, um, who planted an incredibly successful church and has a powerful ministry. And he's hired four church planting failures. In a row. They keep trying to plant this church. It's failed four times. And he just won't acknowledge that he's terrible at evaluating other people. Like, his gut is right so often. He's really right. Like, we ought to do X and not Y. And he can't tell you why, but he's right. He's, a, he's one of those intuitive people. I'll tell you how you can't hire people intuitively. You have to check references. You really have to check references. You have to check secondary references. You have to really know a person. Right? You have, like, this isn't, and he just, like, walks in a room, and if somebody's on that day, he hires them to play in a church. And I would just say he's very unaware of these things for himself. So it's not that he should avoid these. He should, I just want him to have awareness of it. Look, teachability is really self-awareness.
right? It's you knowing who you are and working against that. <clears throat> we have, we're going till 10:15, uh, correct? What t- is that correct? Thank you, Michael. I'm going to change a little bit on you on my introduction. So let me, let me do something really brief. You see on the overhead above the POM overview. And what, <coughs> what we hope is that you'll recognize a couple things about this POM after a couple years with us. Number one, it's really helpful and really good. Number two, it's not complete or perfect. <coughs> but we're really just trying to give you a grid. This is an interpretive grid for your ministry in life. Oh, 10.30. Thank you, Michael. So, like for my campus ministers, I wanted them to be able to very quickly go through, um, you know, reach and equip, uh, scripture, justification, (coughs) sanctification, glorification, the presuppositions, uh, the Bible, God is at work, church, family, individual learning process, demographics, and then what we're after an individual, which is fellowship and service, biblical world and life view, evangelism and missions, and growth and grace. And so this will make a lot more sense to you at the end of the week. I don't expect you to totally understand it. But we're putting this here. But I want to I press on something <clears throat> briefly here with you, which I've already introduced, which is we're trying to get you this week to think about what, what has to be taught and how you're going to do it. Now, I'm not trying to get in trouble, and I wish Les Newsom were here or some other RUF people. But um, our, our, if, you're, if you're not familiar with RUF, it actually makes me happy. But are most of you somewhat familiar with RUF? Can I say, you know? I'm glad that some of you are not, that's actually. RUM, so if, if you're not familiar with RUM, you can, like, drink coffee right now. But for those of you familiar with it, I need to say this to you so I can uncomplicate something this week for you. RUM talks about POM too much. When you get around RUF people, it's like their secret code language. You understand, I'm the like high priest of the guru, so like I'm a, this is my fault. Like, oh, our POM, our POM, the POM, POM. It's like the worst Alabama football fan ever, right? The process, <laughs> the process, the process. Um, and this language becomes super secret. <coughs> but what... Now, what RUF doesn't really have is a POM. They actually have a theology of ministry. I'm just telling you this for those who are in it. And, and this is what I mean, and this is why I think this is helpful. I'm not criticizing it. I think RYM has done a better job of this than RUF. Is when you look at all of those words up here on the board, and, and, and you're going to get four or five pages of material on what these mean, Right? That's an excellent theology of ministry. And the, but the only thing it tells people to do, for instance, which is extraordinary, is you ought to do one-on-one small groups and large groups. Well, that's only a description of reality. Like, There's only three options. I'm talking to one of you, I'm talking to two of you, or I'm talking to six of you. It's, a, it's literally a description, and that's the only thing it tells you to do, which is a mess a little bit. I'm not about to get up here and, and tell you I know how you should do youth ministry exactly every detail in your area. But if you only talk about what you believe, we believe that the best way to describe union with Christ is scripture, justification, sanctification, and glorification. 
We believe that the things operating in the background of every ministry are a view of the Bible, how God is at work, the church, the family, the individual, the learning process, and demographics, which are beautiful. These are incredibly helpful. And we want every individual to grow in grace, do evangelism and missions, to have a biblical world life view and fellowship and service. Well, no kidding. You didn't pay money for that, right? The question, like, that's just, that's good, beautiful theology of ministry. There is some question of how you translate this. And that question is not being answered well. So I've had several people through the years in this training call me after the training and go, that was awesome. What do I do with it? I interviewed a guy recently (coughs) in Tucson with a little committee. Uh, We're looking for a youth pastor. Plug for me. Um, And we interviewed a couple youth pastors, and one of them was a guy from the South who's, who's really good. And he said in the interview, well, you know, I just do the RUM philosophy of ministry. Well, people in Tucson have no idea what that means. So this really great lady in my church, who I wish I had 100 of her, said, well, what does that mean? And he said, you know, the RUF philosophy of ministry. <laughs> so if what we teach you has no impact on how you do it, I just want you to know on some level we're failing. And... I just want you to know that in reform circles, this is a weakness of ours. It's not, a, it's not like a mortal wound we can't get over. <coughs> and if you come, if you hang around for three years and you get in my leadership class this afternoon, I'm going to answer the question very dramatically and very clearly. But, but, and this is where I'm down with what we're doing. We're trying to get you to simplify how you think about what needs to be taught. Now follow me, but especially to youth. So the way I think about discipling my 30 to 50-year-old men in my church is different than how I disciple my 14 to 21-year-old group, right? It's not a different gospel. It's not a different Jesus. But these people are different developmentally. They have clearly different struggles. I am never having to tell my 40 to 50-year-old men to put down their cell phones except about work. Like, they're not on Instagram. They don't care about Taylor Swift or whoever the most popular person is. I mean, they're getting emails about work, but it's not like they're lost in social media. So it's even different applications. (laughs) But this theology must impact not only what you believe, but how you believe it. So my first argument here is... um, On the what is, you are not unique. (laughs) Let me tell you what I mean by this. (coughs) Every time people really listen to the philosophy of ministry and get engaged, I have somebody say, and I'm not mad at this person, like, you know, John, we teach the whole Bible. Okay, nobody in the world teaches the whole Bible. It's impossible. I don't mean we don't do exposition in Deuteronomy. I don't mean I don't love Genesis 1. I have my preaching schedule going, you know, for about three years out there, and I'm doing Old Testament, New Testament, you know. I get it. But nobody can teach the whole Bible, right? You've got to make choices, but especially with high school and college students, especially. So in some of what you see expressed here is the question of we get a freshman, high school or college, or we get a sixth grader. You know, sixth grade boy, what does he do? He sits in a chair, he puts his hands on his knees, he looks at the floor. What can they take in? You know, they have, they have too much schoolwork, too much parental pressure. <coughs> what can they take in? 
And you have to make choices. You're not unique. So if you say to me, we're going to teach the whole Bible, I'm just saying to you out of deep love and 53 years of experience, you can't do that. You're going to be confusing. One of the ways that Reformed theology does help us is that it gives us basic categories that help us put a lot of content under those words that people can use and carry around, which have a deep impact on their experience with God. So, for instance, let's pick the easiest one. I'm not describing it now. <coughs> if you said to me, what do I want my church, what, do I, what, what is my hope that my church will understand uh, when, I, when I leave in 10, 12 years in Tucson, I would not actually give the Tim Keller answer. I wouldn't give the gospel answer because the gospel is too big a word. Gospel is a beautiful thing. If you made me choose, and this is, a, by the way, a product of my personality, my experience, and my circumstances, I would say I want to understand justification by faith. So uh, for me, this isn't true for all of you. Um, I grew up a Southern Baptist. Uh, we were essentially exhausted and lying about smoking and sex. That's what a Southern Baptist was. Okay, if you're Southern Baptist, forgive me. I forgot there's Southern Baptists here. But from my experience in my little town, we were holy but lying about our personal private lives. And we were exhausted. We were doing everything. So when somebody introduced to me the idea of ju justification by faith, it literally transformed my entire life. It wasn't that I was, I was a Christian before that. I knew that Christ loved me. I did not understand personally that I had been imputed the righteousness of Christ. So, for example, why do I pick that? Um, because the Levitical sacrifice, which is a picture of justification by faith, doesn't speak that as clearly as Romans 4 does. And when I've got somebody for four years, I have to make choices. That doesn't mean I would not do a Levitical Bible study. But we're making choices on what, and partially because of who we're ministering to here. So a lot of you, are because you're so thoughtful and so educated, are going to go, this is really incomplete. Sure. <coughs> but we're doing high schoolers and college students. And we would rather a high schooler and college student especially be able to articulate what our view of Scripture is and what our view of justification and sanctification is more, more, I don't like this, more than our view of one covenant. I'll get them to one covenant if I can keep them in church. I'm going to keep them in church by getting them to believe that Jesus loves them and they ought to follow Jesus. So if I do translate this to church, it might be fuller. So I'm just anticipating your thoughtful questions here. But we have to decide what we're teaching, and this is what we've decided. Second reason we've decided this, this is what the confession says. If you really dig inside the confession, what we're doing in this document is we're highlighting the confessions, what it sees as important. So as you look at the way the confession lays out Christian living or lays out the spiritual life, you see it emphasizing these things in it. Thirdly, <coughs> if you think about the Apostle Paul, I have to make sure how I'm doing on time. If you, I'm doing great on time. If you think about how the Apostle Paul argues with, for instance, he writes Romans, right, uh, to people he's never met. And then he writes <coughs> Galatians to a church he's planted that is deserting in his mind his gospel. And then I know he didn't write this, but then, for instance, James is being written to people who are giving up on the law, right? All three of those books turn on an exposition of this verse. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All three, those are dealing... 
We're dealing with new Christians who've never met us, legalists and libertarians. So this is how PCA deals. For the legalist, we have sonship, and for the libertarians, we have some God's law loves you and leads you to homeschooling, right? Something like that. Thank you for laughing at that. Thank you. I appreciate you laughing at that. I love homeschoolers. I got a bunch of them in my church. But we have something like that, right? And we do different verses. We do different verses. Bible says, hey, you don't understand what people need, which is Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it has these big common threads in that one covenant. <coughs> so this is just a long way of saying there have been hundreds of thousands of men who've thought about this, and this is sort of where we landed. If I'm doing what I'm doing now in Tucson, which is birth to death, I might have more things there, but not really. And I'll give you this last example before I move on to my last point. <coughs> um, uh, I, this, I'm doing Colossians this spring. I could tell that my church... So I started at my church the last week of September, and I did a little series on uh, Jesus through the eyes of Peter, because there are eight great verses on Jesus through the eyes of Peter that got me to Advent, and then I did Luke in Advent. But I could tell my church... Any new church is suspicious of you as a new pastor. Like, can you really do it, right? I get the suspicion. So uh, I got asked these questions, like, do you ever just preach through a book? So I just picked Colossians, and I stood up on second week of January, so we're going through Colossians. And I got to this week in Colossians at the end of the first chapter, where he says, <coughs> Paul articulates the gospel, where he says, you know, you've been alienated, but God made you right through his son's body. And I, I just said this. I said, look, guys. What do I want you to walk away with 15 years from now when I die or when I leave? I hope I just leave and don't die. Um, um, and I said, I want you to walk away with this, that in Christ, you, you have had your sins removed. But more importantly, because he says something that's crazy. He goes, you are um, without blemish, free from accusation. It's crazy. Like, I, I challenge you to meditate. You are without blemish. Free from accusation. I'll tell you who disagrees with that. My wife, my children, and my session. They really disagree with that, and they're right. And yet in Christ, I am without blemish, free from accusation. That's crazy. I had two people leaving the church Sunday who said, I want to come by your office and talk to you about that. I've never heard that before. Now, the guy who planted the church is amazing, so I'm not criticizing him. I'm sure he said it, but I, I just would like to commend to you that the reason these things have ended up up here is not accidental and it's not arbitrary. They are the things that work in spiritual dynamics to help people change. My last point is, <coughs> and I'm going to whet your appetite. I, I think Jewish Stewart will let me do this without getting in a lot of trouble, <coughs> is I think in the reform world, and this goes back to my first illustration, is how you translate what to how is, the, is actually the big debate. Um, and I would argue to you that the answer to this, and this needs to be included, Joey, in the POM, that the answer from what to how is incarnation. Now, under incarnation, and I'll say this this afternoon, this is not to y'all, that looks like culture and leadership. 
And both those words in Reformed circles are kind of poo-pooed. Culture and leadership. But I'm not, I'm not doing it as self-serving this time. Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney are the best producers of culture in college football right now. It's no question. It's no question. You talk to any Alabama player, if you really get into their like social feeds, they would die for Nick Saban, literally die for him. Because the culture he's produced, which is holistic, like if you get in Alabama's program what they do with nutrition, they're all, they're all wearing these GPS monitors, what their heart rates are doing, the way they prepare people both academically and physically for the NFL is unparalleled. Don't lie to yourself. It's not just recruiting. And, and yet, in one sense, Dabo's culture is slightly different than Nick's. Nick's is a little more, um, I, I don't have a good word, but it's a little more mechanistic. Dabo's is a little, um, it's just a little different. I, I, I don't want to really choose because I'm not interested in talking about their cultures. I'm interested in you seeing that you translate this stuff into how by incarnation and what Jesus did I'm just going to do this for five minutes. This is important. So I want you to think about how Jesus preached the gospel. <coughs> so he was in heaven. He was an, he's an eternal being. Both those words are wrong. He, because he's an eternal being, both those words are wrong about him. He, he's an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. And his family ran off to the far country and started drinking and doing drugs and having sex. That's an accurate, like, you know picture from a parable and so he wanted to rescue us so he left that traveled trillions of miles uh, onto, uh, all the big words we use ontologically epistemologically and he put flesh on so that he could win you so Paul articulates this when he says to the Greek I become Greek to the lawbreaker, I become a lawbreaker. To the lawkeeper, I become a lawkeeper. I become like the people I want to reach that I might win them more. Now, in this moment, Jesus is creating a culture, <coughs> and he's leading, and he's doing it by incarnation. I don't mind addressing the elephant in the room. The big debate in, in most circles is what we call contextualization. And so you're either big into contextualization, or you think it's deeply evil. Um, and I just would argue with you, you can't really explore the incarnation without dipping your toe into the idea of contextualization. So this is what's interesting about our churches, <coughs> our progressive and our conservative churches, are both in one sense struggling with this. I mean, nobody's got this down. But in the one sense, you can't take the view, for instance, that we're just going to do Bible-based ministry. We're going to be faithful and it's going to be organic. That will basically fail. Your job as a minister is that you know what you believe and how you articulate it to people looks like you becoming like them. <laughs> now, the reason this is hard and I'm, is that the first verse that comes up in all, conser all conservatives' mind is, come out and be separate. Be holy. You know, I don't mean that we suddenly become pagans. But we need to move toward the culture and not away from it. There is no place in the New Testament where Jesus is, as it were, moving away from the culture because he has on flesh. He has on flesh. He has changed so much in order to win us, but he certainly didn't change what he believed, right? 
He's revolutionary in the way he deals with women. He's revolutionary in the way he deals with leaders. He's revolutionary in the way he deals with the church because he's taken on flesh and he's creating a culture and a leadership. So now we see, once the apostles get it, that they start going to the Areopagus. Or in, like they're going to the center of culture to do ministry. <coughs> and that you, I'm not going to answer this for you, but you have, this is what you ought to teach. You've got to decide how to teach it. And there's a lot of ways in which we're self-protective and not careful because we don't really understand incarnation, which is creating a culture and leadership and becoming like them. And I'll tell you what's especially hard about this for the fun of it, as I don't run out of time too quickly, <coughs> is this. The minute you build a church building, you struggle with this. You just do, right? Because now we're coming into church and we're acting weird. So, like, the music in my church is not being played anywhere else in Tucson culture. There's no place you can go here. So I have two services. We do sort of two really different services. There's no place that you can go here, this grand choir with a piano, singing 500-year-old songs. Tucson doesn't have any idea what to do with that. I'm not going to stop doing that, by the way. But it's an interesting question that when we went in that building, we become sort of weird, right? We're not like Tucson. And again, I don't mean we're not, you know, Tucson is, Tucson is deeply suspicious of marriage. I moved to the town with the highest rate of singleness in America. 71 out of every 100 people are single in Tucson. Um, no one gets married in Tucson. It's full of men who've left their families and moved to the desert to play golf. Which just has implications. If you're trying to talk to them, they're not ever coming to a church building with a big cross on it. They're not. <coughs> so like one of our programming decisions at, at Catalina Foothills is, we're going to do most of our big events outside the church building, and we get more people coming. So, like, we're having a Monday Thursday service off-site, and we already have people signing up, and we already have people who have no idea what church is wanting to come eat this dinner and hear this talk, because it's not in the church. So what I'm trying to do is to get us to take what we believe to where they are, and how we do that looks like us dealing with the incarnation. <coughs> the reason I want to move your language to the incarnation here is... Our traditions are full of methodological discussions that I just don't personally find that helpful. Let me give you one, and then y'all can throw rocks at me and ask questions. So I'm going to pick, I'm going to be pejorative at this point. There's just not a lot of, of, of worship-type discussion in the New Testament. There's a lot of call to worship God, right? To not forsake the assembly. They were to, like... They were together, they da-da-da, da-da-da-da. But when you get in our circles, the immediate discussions about worship are what type of worship do you do? What kind of music do you do? Are you liturgical or non-liturgical? I challenge you. Uh, you're, uh, you're going, you know, John, there, it's clearly that's an early, you know, in Thessalonians, that's an early confession they use. It doesn't say that. You have to know that from church history. I'm saying the Bible itself is not asking the questions about worship that we tend to be asking. I'm a big worship guy. But my point is, it sort of detracts from this question. And I'm not even a big, I'm not a big, I don't feel defensive. Like, I'm not a big Willow Creek, like worship's got to be for everybody. My point is, we blow a lot of air on this discussion of worship, and it isn't blown in the New Testament. Like, 
Your worship needs to be God-centered, gospel-centered, and inviting. That's what I can find in the New Testament. Like, I mean, that really, like you, when you say we must use an organ, great for y'all. I mean, great for Covenant Church in Nashville. They spent $17 million on an organ. Good for them. They ought to use that organ. It's $17 million bucks. Let's play that thing. Let, like, let's bang them, like, for sure. And people will come to that. People are actually... Tra- but that's not obedience. That's not like... And this is my point is, we have gold. Guys, this is eternal salvation. And Jesus had eternal salvation. We lost it. And he chased us. And I would just argue that the reformed world is struggling to chase people. Now, why am I going on my little soapbox here with y'all? Because youth ministry has to embrace this or it's going to fail. Like, you've got to go to where youth are. I'm not trying to be pejorative on this. I'm, I'm just, but, like, I'm not into everything Young Life does, but, man, I appreciate that they're trying to do the meeting near the high school, in a house, not in a church, and that they're trying to use music that those kids know to get them there. Is everything perfect about that, and we're about to teach you to do Young Life? No. But there's something good in that movement toward kids. You will not be effective much longer in this culture if you only have an attractional model, unless you've built a $2 million youth house, you have the best TVs and the best foods. And attraction, pizza will always work, I promise you. And you should do it. I'm, not, I'm just saying, but if you're really into an attractional model in youth ministry, you're going to struggle. So I'll end with this, and I'll let you ask questions. Tim Keller recently said this, and I think it's helpful. This is why I'm arguing about incarnation. And this is, this is the question I think RUM refuses to answer. And I'm the reason they refuse to answer it, right? <coughs> in every culture, in every time and space, there was always an idea that there was truth. Now, we couldn't agree on the truth. It's, it's, uh, it's evolution, it's, it's Buddha, it's, it's an ancient Roman god. But here was people, and we had to seek truth to create a whole person. Right? So when you did church or youth group, because you're talking about truth, people would come. America is the first place ever where we have said there is no truth. The only truth is the individual. And the individual must be happy and free. (coughs) Which means if I have one problem with you, you have to change. So we no longer have this thing working in our culture, and especially for kids. For instance... Your kids think of truth like an app. You load it, you unload it. You you put it on your phone, right? This is this idea that an app works for me, not an app is transcendent. So in see, this is why the attractional model in church has worked until about 15 years ago. Still working in a bunch of places. I mean, one of the fascinating things I discovered going to Catfoot is we did this Christmas concert, which I was like poo-poo and like, why are we doing a Christmas? Yeah, a thousand people came. A bunch of pagans came, and I, had, I actually found him. I was like, tell me why you came. He's like, man, I love singing Christmas hymns. I'm like, you don't believe them? He's like, no, I don't believe them. It's fascinating. <laughs> so it's not, that, it's not that there's never a moment, right? But if you don't understand that now the only truth is individual fulfillment. So if this is true, then I never compromise myself for you if you're my spouse or my child. And in this new model, which is really not even taking place in Europe, it's really just in the U.S., and what Keller says about it is fascinating, your attractional model is dead. 
you will have to figure out how to get in the presence of youth. You'll have to be like youth. I said that was my last story. This is my last story. Most effective campus semester I ever saw was Kevin Teasley. Kevin Teasley's at Wake Forest. He's at Tennessee Tech. Uh, and there are a lot of really effective campus semesters. I want to tell you this about While Kevin Teasley was at Wake Forest, if the Pikes had offered him a bid, he would have taken it. Because he, never, he wished he'd never left college. Now, a lot of you are like, that's true of me. That's just because you have a mortgage, you're depressed, and have a midlife crisis, right? <laughs> but there was something about Kevin that intuitively understood college students. Like, Kevin called me one time and said, I'm thinking about canceling my large group. I'm like, well, he's like, you know, YouTube's playing. I'm like, well, seems valid to me. Like, Kevin got what a college student was, and therefore he moved toward them. And he's not very aware of this. But he moved toward them in ways that most campus ministers can't. And RUF struggles this because we want to do large group with like our Kevin Twitt music from like five centuries ago, right? And this sort of weird thing. This is going to hurt RUF. If, if you don't understand that this is changing in your culture, it's already changed for everybody under 18. You're going to struggle in youth ministry. This is why I think incarnation is important. And I'm finished. Questions? Yes, sir. Okay, so um, I, I was Michael, his son's boss, and he was just doing a lecture in the Redeemer office. I think he's about to publish this. It's something he's been thinking about. And uh, I went to this, I was seeing Michael, and I went, it's like their staff. It was actually a room about this size, but he was saying, hey, I think we've got to change the way we're thinking, da-da-da-da, so it's not published. But Honestly, he didn't do a lot more than that. It's just that it sounded way better than what I did. Like, Keller uses all this language and, you know, stuff I don't know. But it makes sense to me. It's a good question. This or this? You know, we would say in RUF, I mean, it takes you three to five years to get what's going on around you figured out, you know. <laughs> and so I, it, I had a couple of big moments, but I would say it was about five years. And I want to be clear. I don't think I've got it, but I do think I understand what I, I think I'm better at interpreting what I see. Right? I don't, <coughs> I'll still never be good at a small group, for instance. I'm better at one-on-ones. I'm better at large group. But I don't think you, I don't think we can just teach this to you. I think you have to, like, it's like a grid. And we put it up there. And as you interpret, the, as you experience the world, It'll make more sense to you. It's about five years probably. Any other questions? See, I don't. See, this is why my small groups fail. I just talked all this time. People are like, I don't have questions. I have my friends get up and they ask one question. People are like, uh, tell me how to be a Christian. Lead me to Christ. That never happens with me. Yes, ma'am. So what I would do, for instance, I'll give you, I'm going to give you an example of what I think we have to do more of in youth ministry, and some of you are doing this. You just have to acknowledge what they're doing. No, hear me very carefully in the next sentence. Figure out in what ways you can do that with them and start trying to get them to interpret it back to you. I'll give you one that you can all do. You should take all your youth to see the new Mary Poppins. The next night, you should see the old one. 
and you should tell them to tell you what the difference is because it's profound. In the original Mary Poppins, there's one chord that pulls us off the ground at the end. In the new Mary Poppins, everybody has their own balloon. That's a fundamental statement about individual freedom that is destructive. And I think you've got to begin to help them deconstruct. So they're deconstructing us. It's time for us to deconstruct them back, not the youth, but what they're watching. Like, um, why is all music saying something that their experience is against? So all music is saying, once you find that person to love you perfectly, not you love them perfectly. That's interesting. So the first thing is, once again, once I find my person to love me, I'll be fine. It's not true for any of their parents. Like, I want to get them in a room and go, let's listen to the music. What is it saying? It's saying, when I find my love, and like, tell me about your parents. I want them, you've got to, de- so, again, don't, of course we're going to teach Bible studies, but if we're not teaching Bible studies in light of what they're listening to, and, and making application to, to their music, their videos, like, there's a part of you that has to be into youth culture to do youth ministry. The reason I can't do youth ministry is I'm happily 53 and empty nested. I mean, incredibly happily. And, but if you're going to do it, you have to. And you can't say that's terrible. It's terrible. You've got to step into it and say, what's being said here? And you want some of them to go, I want you to know I don't believe the Bible. You're after them going, I believe Drake and not the Bible. Great. We've now made progress. We're not getting that in many churches where they can confess that. 